Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, my name is Michael Frada. I'm the Assistant Program Director at Drisha. Uh, very excited to have everyone here uh, this evening for our annual Renee and Alexander Bohm Memorial Lecture uh, with Dr. Jonathan Sarna. Uh, but without further ado, I'm going to hand it over to Rabbi Silbert. Thank you very much. Um, so we are, again, uh, we are at the time we are uh, presenting the Renee and Alexander Bohm Memorial Lecture, which is sponsored by uh, Alyssa Shea Ordan and Dan Ordan. And uh, it's in memory of uh, grandparents. And today actually is the 45th yard site of uh, Alyssa's mother, Lucy Bohm Shea, from the Tadasa Bat Menachem Mendel. So an additional significant event. We're glad that all of you can join us here to hear Professor Sarna. His topic is a rather timely one. Uh, Dr. Sarna is a, a university professor, Joseph H. N. Bell R. Brun, Professor of American Jewish History and Director of the Schusterman Center for Israel Studies at Brandeis University. He is uh, also the past president of the National Museum of American Jewish History in Philadelphia. And he's recognized as a leading commentator on American Jewish history, religion, and life. He obtained his doctorate from Yale University in 1979. He's taught at a variety of universities, uh, especially at Brandeis. And uh, Professor Sarna is married to Professor Ruth Langer. They have two children, Aaron and Leah. I will say that the Sarna family in general has a very deep connection to Drisha. Professor Langer has spoken uh, at Drisha. Leah is a full-time employee in charge of the high school program and in charge of programs for young people at Drisha. And uh, Professor uh, Nochum Sarna, a past-breaking scholar in uh, Bible, was a frequent teacher in summers at Drisha. So we feel deeply connected to the Sarna family as we do to the Ordan Shea family. So without further ado, I invite all of us to hear Professor Jonathan uh, Sarna praying for the president, a study in American history and the halacha. Thank you very much. All right, well, thank you very much, and uh, uh, good evening, and uh, happy Hanukkah, and Chodesh uh, uh, Tov. It's wonderful uh, to be here. I want to say how honored I am to have been invited to deliver uh, the Bowen Memorial Lecture, and really what a wonderful way for uh, uh, the Ordans and the Shays to remember uh, their family with, uh, with learning. Uh, and as Rabbi Silber indicated, uh, I have another reason to be grateful uh, for the opportunity. The truth is I, I have um, what Freud probably would have called Drisha envy, meaning my father, Alava Shalom, taught at Drisha, and actually my niece studied at Drisha, and my wife has spoken, and my daughter is associate director and director of the high school programs. So I'm glad to have Drisha on my uh, resume as well. I, our subject this evening is indeed a, a timely one. Uh, in five weeks, uh, a new American president will, in Mirza Shem, be inaugurated. Some Jews are happy about that. Some Jews are unhappy about that. 
But my question this evening is how do we as praying Jews respond liturgically to a new president, really, whether we like him or not? Uh, slide, please. Now, this is not really uh, a new problem uh, for, next slide, for the Jewish people. Uh, the, the issue is really as old as the diaspora itself. Uh, Yirmiyahu, the prophet Jeremiah, is really our classic text. The Jews had been exiled. They're distraught. Yes, Al Naharod Babel, we're crying by the rivers of Babylon. But make no mistake, so Yirmiyahu tells us we have to pray for the welfare of the community to which we were exiled. Seek the welfare of the city to which I have exiled you and pray to the Lord uh, in its behalf for in its prosperity, you shall prosper. Um, now note well that it says that we should pray for the city. Some say pray for the community. Um, uh, it doesn't say a word about the government. Uh, but as we'll see, and we'll come back to it, uh, the two, government and community, are linked uh, in the Jewish political mind. And the overall idea here, an idea um, uh, which I think many of us are familiar with, the idea is if the community is at peace, we Jews as a minority will be left alone. Social tension, Yirmiyahu suggests, is not good for the Jews. When there's prosperity, Jews will prosper. So that's our first text. Much less known because it's in Aramaic is uh, the book of Ezra, which is much more explicit in its instructions. Uh, if you look at the context, Dar Yavesh, the King Darius, reiterates the earlier order of uh, Koresh of King Cyrus to rebuild the temple. And he makes clear that in the Beit HaMikdash, in addition to sacrifices that, um, uh, that will be offered. Also, there should be praise, Lachaye uh, Malka Uvnoi, for the life of the king and his sons. Now, uh, you may reasonably wonder. Why do we only pray for his sons? 
What about if you had daughters? Don't we care about their lives? And it's interesting, not only the, the Masoret, but actually our lived religion teaches us that um, uh, the word sons really means heirs to the throne. And when Jews lived in countries where they like England, where there were female heirs to the throne, uh, they prayed for them as well. Now, then we come and in a minute or a few minutes, you'll see why I include this text. There is an apocryphal book known as the book of Baruch. Actually, the book of Baruch probably was written at the time of the Maccabees. Apocryphal books, they are not books that were accepted into our Tanakh, but they were nevertheless recognized. This is a, a book that's found in the Septuagint and other sources, although it pretends to be from the time of Yirmiyahu. What interests me is that it requires Jews to pray for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and for his son, Belshazzar, for their life on earth, uh, that their life on earth may last. Uh, we do not have uh, the original Hebrew of the book of Baruch, that's why. I've given it to you in, um, in English, but the volume was known. Um, and um, uh, what's important here is it's Nebuchadnezzar, not exactly a hero of the Jewish people. Um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was reviled. Nevertheless, according to our text, uh, we are supposed to pray for him and uh, and uh, for his son, uh, whether it's actually his son is a problem we won't go into, uh, that their life on earth may last. You might imagine we should pray for his rapid death, given how our tradition views Nebuchadnezzar, comes the book of Baruch and says the opposite. Um, and if all of that sounds strange, why not simply curse an evil ruler? Why should we pray for rulers who are wicked? Comes along Pirkei Avot, the Mishnah, which we know as Pirkei Avot, the ethics of the father, Mishnah Avot in a very famous passage teaches us a kind of, uh, Long before Hobbes, this is a Hobbesian view of the world. Rabbi Hanina Skana Kohanim Omer, Havei Mitpalel Bishlomashel Malchutshe Ilmalei Mora'a, Ishetreyehu Chayim Blaau. Rabbi Hanina, the deputy high priest, says, Pray for the welfare of the government, were it not for the fear of it human beings would swallow their fellow human beings alive. 
Um, in other words, a government, any government, is better than no government. If you have no government, um, uh, uh, Rabbi Hanina seems to believe you have anarchy, everybody will kill one another. The real anarchists, if you read Kropotkin, the famous anarchist uh, author, he believed that human beings uh, would be like ants and they'd all cooperate in their natural state. But I don't know anywhere where that actually worked out. Rabbi Hanina, I think, had it better. Um, what's interesting is we have a manuscript text um, of Pirkeovos, of the Ethics of the Father, that suggests that we, that adds the word after Malchut, that it's, and that it's, it's, it's cruel to us. Uh, but even if it's wicked to us, the context is, of course, Rome, even if it's wicked, this, uh, uh, this Malchus, even if it's a Malchus Zodon, uh, we have to pray for its welfare. And those of us who have watched even recent events in Afghanistan and Syria and Iraq and elsewhere, I know that uh, uh, indeed um, uh, it's not great when there's no government. I also want to observe that whereas Yirmiyahu talks about the prayer for the city, Shlom Ha'ir, Pirkei Avot explicitly talks about Malchus, about the government. And to this day, and we'll turn to the prayer in a minute, some Sidurim call it a prayer for our country, and some Sidurim call it a prayer for our government. The text actually uh, often has both. And um, the reason is that the fate of a country heavily depends upon the wisdom and action of its leaders. Uh, in other words, the, 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 the Malchus and Shlomair uh, are intertwined in reality. And I dare say uh, that is true even in the United States of America as recent events have demonstrated. You cannot separate the government from uh, the faith of the community at large. One slight digression, since it's Hanukkah, we should say something. Uh, there is not any evidence that the Maccabees prayed for the welfare of King Antiochus. And the reason is precisely because they were not in the diaspora. This is very much a series of rules for how a minority group is supposed to live in Galut. Um, and the prayer uh, that we're going to look at and all of the prayers um, uh, that have turned up in different communities, there are quite a lot of them, are, are really prayers uh, that are rooted in the diaspora minority experience. And in our own time, we have seen that when Jews regained sovereignty in the modern state of Israel, they quite properly 
wrote a different, totally different um, uh, and very interesting prayer, Avinu Shabbat Shamayim to Yisrael and so on. That's not our subject this evening. Indeed, there's a whole book now on the prayer for the state of Israel, but they were completely correct in writing a different prayer and recognizing that Yirmiyahu and Ezra and Baruch and, and, uh, and Rabbi Hanina were all talking about diaspora situations. Now, let me observe that anyone who actually studies the diaspora history of the Jews, whether it's Bavel or Rome, or whether we move up to the contemporary Soviet Union or Iran, we find the paradox that Jews have prayed fervently for governments that they actually despise. I visited Jews in the Soviet Union when it existed in 1986, and uh, I heard um, a, a prayer for the communist government that didn't allow Jews even basic human rights. And yet they prayed fervently uh, uh, for it. This paradox is really, as we will see, built in to um, uh, to what our what uh, uh, the prophets and our tradition taught us. We were taught that we had to pray for the welfare. It doesn't say that uh, we're forbidden to despise the government. We can do both. We uh, indeed can be subversive even as we openly pray. And it's fascinating, but I'm sure everybody watching knows that, that we have a tradition that allowed us publicly to pray for, say, the czar, and quietly to make clear what we really think. Um, next slide, please. The rabbis of old cleverly disguise their views of hated governments. Indeed, we Jews are virtuosos in what the great philosopher Leo Strauss called persecution and the art of writing. Uh, this, of course, is from the musical Fiddler on the Roof, which fascinatingly preserves this very tradition. Is there a proper blessing for the czar? And the rabbi responds, a blessing for the czar? Of course, may God bless and keep the czar far away from us. Um, and, and this is the subversive tradition that I'm talking about. Now, you may think, ah, oh, but that's fiction. It's based on Sholem Aleichem. Is there a historical example? So take a look at the next slide, please, at this Russian Sidur. I wonder if there's any way to make it 
speaker to people. Um, take a look at this Russian Sidur. Uh, hmm. Well, you'll have to look well. Um, uh, this uh, Sidur uh, is from the late Tsarist um, uh, era. Uh, those of you who read Hebrew will see that it includes a prayer not only for Nicholas and Alexandra, but also uh, for um, uh, the son of Nicholas, whose name was Alexei, and uh, who was born in, um, in 1904. Nebuchadnezzar needed the prayer. He was a, um, a hemophiliac. Um, and so the sitter must date from somewhere between 1904 and World War One. Now, I'm sure that even those not expert at Russian history are aware Nicholas was no favorite of the Jews. Uh, the, the name Nicholas was not popular in Jewish circles, and Tsar Nicholas, for good reason, was hated by the Jewish community. And of course, millions of Jews uh, escaped uh, from Russia uh, during uh, those years. That was the height of immigration to the United States was under Nicholas. Nevertheless, what you can see here is a sidur, and in big letters, um, uh, uh, you can see the name uh, of Nicholas and his wife and, uh, and his son. But then, and I'm afraid uh, only those with excellent vision will be able to see it, there is something absolutely remarkable about this Sidur. In the very top line, you see a little asterisk. It says, Tfilah ba'ad shlom adoneinu, a, a prayer for our master, Hakesar. The Tsar Yarum Hodo, full of, uh, of glory to the Tsar. Then there's a tiny asterisk. Um, uh, historians love these footnotes. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it's so small that, ah, Baruch, the, the little footnote at the bottom, seeks to explain why we pray for the government. That in itself is a very strange thing. We don't usually explain in a sidur why we say a, a prayer, but you might expect that uh, if we were praying for the government, that uh, we would give one of the texts that uh, we read. We would quote Jeremiah, Yirmiyahu, we would quote, the ethics of the fathers, a pirkei avot. Maybe we'd quote, if we wanted to show our uh, fluency in Aramaic, we'd quote Ezra. But it doesn't do anything of the sort. Instead, it reads as follows. Baruch Beneria, katav mehagola el yoshvei Yerushalayim. Lehit Palel al Chayenavuchad Netzar Melech Pavel, 
Ubelshatzar Bano Ki Yirbu Yamim Ki Mehashamayim Allah Aret Sefer Baruch. It says Boruch ben Neria, the son of Neria, wrote from the diaspora to the people of Jerusalem that they should pray for the life of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylonia, and Belshazzar, his son, um, that their um, years uh, should be lengthened, and so on. It, and he quotes this book of Borach. Leave aside uh, that it's a different verse than uh, in number than than I gave you. There were different traditions of how to uh, number the book of Borach. This is persecution in the art of writing. In a very oblique way, so subtle that it escaped the watchful censor's pen, this Sidur covertly linked the czar to one of the most despised of all diaspora monarchs, Nebuchadnezzar. And so overtly, in big black letters, we pray for Nicholas and his family, but in a tiny subversive aside at the bottom, uh, we make clear that we pray for him, but actually we view him the same way we view Nebuchadnezzar, a cursed figure. Uh, I have to tell you that tradition is well known. I've seen it in the United States uh, with my own eyes in 1979 when uh, I lived in Cambridge, where people are still a little subversive. Uh, Jimmy Carter was the president. The Chazan, one Shabbat, was not a great lover of President Carter, whose views on Israel he did not share. And um, uh, when asked to read the prayer for the government, uh, he read um, uh, putting his hands uh, uh, up uh, and pointing to heaven. Uh, suggesting uh, a very different meaning, uh, a subversive meaning um, uh, to our text that the president uh, should ascend to heaven. So um, we, we have here two traditions, a manifest tradition that tells Jews what politically they should do, and then we have another tradition, uh, a quiet subversive tradition that um, is harder to find, but expresses what Jews in some diaspora settings certainly thought. But even more remarkable, this subversive tradition is actually built in to the prayer itself. Indeed, it is one of the most remarkable uh, uh, tefillot. Um, as we will see, its manifest language, uh, and this prayer um, uh, is usually uh, dated to the 16th century, 
um, it's it, uh, it it starts in the Sephardic world. It crosses over to the Ashkenazic world. Um, uh, but this um, uh, this prayer is very unusual because it doesn't begin the way any other prayer in our entire Siddur begins. Most prayers begin Avinu Malkeinu, our father, our king, or um, um, uh, uh, with Baruch Ata, or Avinu Shabashamayim, um, with some well-known call to God. There is not another prayer in the entire liturgy, so far as I know, uh, that begins with the words, Hanotain lamlachim, he who gives dominion to kings. And when you see something very unusual like that, a wise person says, where did that uh, phrase come from? And if we could look at the next slide, we'll see where it comes from. The phrase uh, comes from Tehillim, from the Book of Psalms. Many people uh, should recognize it because there is a custom to read this uh, psalm on Mo uh, 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 before Marav on Motzei Shabbat. And you can see it in verse 10. Hanotain lamlachim david he who gives salvation to kings, who delivers David, his servant, from the hateful sword. But now I want to draw your attention to the next verse, which is not in our prayer, but Jews who knew their Psalms knew what the next verse was. Let's look at it. It reads, Pitseini v'hatsileini miyad Rescue me, deliver me from the hand of strangers whose mouth speak vanity and their right hand is a right hand of falsehood. Um, and in other words, there was a kind of esoteric reading available and known only to those clever Jews who knew their Psalms by heart and who said one thing out loud, but thought to themselves uh, about the next verse. I won't go verse by verse here, but there are other esoteric readings in the prayer. If you do go verse by verse, you'll see uh, there's a verse from Yeshayahu, which is really from a whole chapter predicting that Bavel will fall. And then there's a verse from Yirmiyahu about the ingathering of the exiles and the restoration of the Davidic dynasty. And then next slide, please. And then um, the, the, um, uh, uh, th this is Yishayahu. Um, uh, uh, there and oh, it's cut off at the bottom. Uh, our prayer ends the very last a line of the traditional prayer for the government, which we had earlier, was Uvalitzion Goel, and you can see it in the last three words, slightly cut. 
Uh, but if you look at the contact for Uval Tzion Goel, take a look at the translation, Ka'al Gemulot, Ka'al Yushalem Chema, according to their deeds, so will he repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, and so on. In other words, um, even the last line, which sounds so innocuous, innocuous, a redeemer will come to Zion, is preceded by a call for vengeance, a sentiment not found, of course, in the prayer itself, but surely on the minds of some Jews who recited it. In other words, um, simultaneously, Jews have prayed aloud to the welfare of the sovereign upon whom their very security depends. That's what we were taught to do in the diaspora. But between the lines, there was often a more subversive message, a call for rescue, for redemption, for revenge. And based on diaspora experience, both messages were fully appropriate. Uh, only some people understood the esoteric meaning, and it only comes out on occasion, especially when Jews live in uh, a place where the, the, the leader is despised. But the prayer is a prayer that functioned even uh, when Jews uh, had a Nicholas um, uh, as, uh, a, 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 as their king. Now, um, uh, having uh, looked at the rest of the diaspora, let's turn a little bit uh, uh, to uh, our side of the pond, as we say. And if we move to the next slide, we will see that uh, the, the prayer uh, accompanied Jews to the American colony. A colonies, indeed, it is found, unfortunately, um, uh, I couldn't find online the page uh, that it's found in, but I've seen it. Um, and this is what you're looking at is uh, the very earliest published American Jewish liturgical composition. It's a form of prayer from Congregation Sherith Israel, today known as the Spanish and Portuguese synagogue. It's also the oldest um, synagogue in uh, the United States, uh, even before the United States, goes back to uh, uh, the early colonial period. And this prayer was geared for external consumption marking the day, October the 23rd, 1760, appointed by proclamation for a general thanksgiving to Almighty God for the reducing of Canada to His Majesty's dominions, which was a long-winded way of saying that the British won the French and Indian War, Canada would henceforward be part of uh, his majesty's dominions. And uh, as part of this form of prayer, um, 
uh, which you can, there are only about uh, three or four copies in the world. One is at the American Jewish Historical Society. As part of this prayer, um, uh, uh, they um, uh, have a long list of officials being blessed. And the interesting thing is that in colonial America, um, when they read out the list of high and mighty officials who were to be blessed in the middle of, of the prayer, Hanotain uh, Chua, he who gives dominion to kings, they read out their names in Portuguese. Uh, most of the members didn't understand Portuguese, but for Sephardic Jews, Portuguese was a very significant language. They often considered themselves Portuguese merchants, even though they'd been expelled from the Iberian Peninsula. They were proud of their ties there. And the role of Portuguese is quite evident in colonial texts. And it is found even, uh, even here. Um, if any of you ever are in uh, London uh, for the 9th of Av, and you go uh, to Bevis Marx, the Sephardic synagogue, you will see in the Haftarah that they read a line by line uh, translation. It's not a real translation. It's an interpolation of the Haftarah in Portuguese. Uh, and it's read out to this very day. Uh, and uh, in the 19th century, that was still the practice uh, in uh, in uh, Mikveh Israel in Philadelphia and in other Sephardic synagogues, even in the United States. Now, um, this is the colonial period. This is the first appearance uh, in North America of our prayer. But then we have an American revolution and the king is overthrown. Uh, that, by the way, is always a problem for Jews in the days when they used to put the name of the king in the uh, prayer book because uh, suddenly you were unpatriotic uh, when um, uh, you had a prayer book with the name of the wrong king. It is quite common to find European Sidurim with uh, the prayer for the government ripped out so they could still use the Sidur, uh, but they had now uh, a different uh, Melech they had to pray for. My own grandfather in Poland in uh, the years before uh, he left, uh, he was under three different governments, uh, uh, Poland, Russia, and Germany um, in his area of Poland. And of course, uh, they had to be very careful in their prayer. So suddenly the king has been overthrown. The American Revolution has happened. And now you have an interesting question. Do we recite the same prayer in the United States as uh, we recited earlier? Is America just another galut or does the liturgy have to reflect uh, something new? Um, many um, 
uh, faiths, let's say the Episcopal Church, so deeply connected to England, uh, they, in fact, uh, wrote a totally new patriotic liturgy and they changed their name. No longer are they Anglicans. Now it's going to be the Episcopal Church. They put out a whole new prayer book, a totally new prayer. That is not what Jews do. But they did make um, three changes. When we look at the next um, at the next slide, they did make three changes of far-reaching significance. I'll explain the slide in a second. First of all, and you can see that here, the Hanotain Chua prayer was radically depersonalized. If you look in the English, it says the president and vice president of the union and so on, the Senate, the House and so forth. It doesn't give any of their names. There is no mention of any individual by name unlike the universal practice previously of mentioning the king and the royal family. And that became the custom in America. There were one or two exceptions, but Jews would usually bless office holders, the president, rather than named individuals. No more personality cult. And that is, so far as I know, the custom almost everywhere to this day. The second thing that you can see uh, in this, the first uh, uh, Siddur, the first prayer book published uh, in the New Nation, um, this uh, 1826, uh, you can see that they no longer read the names of government officials in Portuguese after the revolution, everything uh, becomes English. Uh, that's part of the revolutionary tradition. They accept English uh, and uh, no longer use uh, the Portuguese, which of course nobody uh, understood after one generation. There is a third change which uh, uh, exists under oral tradition, uh, but it's a strong oral tradition. And that is that at Sherith Israel in the Spanish and Portuguese synagogue, they stopped standing up for the prayer for the government. According to oral tradition, the custom of sitting was introduced to symbolize the revolution's abolition of subservience. And that, of course, did not last. Another custom that did not last is illustrated here. Uh, this, as I said, is the first Siddur. It's Solomon Henry Jackson's The Form of Daily Prayers According to the Custom of the Spanish and Portuguese Jews. Its date is 1826. And what I wanted you to see is that there is a distinction between how Hanotain Chua is supposed to be recited during the sitting of Congress and how it is recited during the congressional recess. And during the recess, you will notice no prayer is said for Congress. The idea seems to be that members of Congress are only special. They're only worthy of being included in the prayer for the government 
when Congress is actually in session. Otherwise, the members of Congress are fellow citizens, just like everybody else, and uh, uh, we don't include them in the prayer. That, that uh, tradition, of course, didn't last, uh, but it's extremely revealing of, of how people were thinking uh, about prayer uh, in a new Republican setting, and they did feel free uh, to make certain changes. Now, uh, we do have, and I'll have to move more quickly here, um, we do have more radical ideas of what the prayer for the government should be. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, in the next slide, you'll see a completely new prayer, um, and not surprisingly, uh, this prayer was from the Reform Society of Israelites. Uh, this is the very first um, a reform prayer book in 1830 from the Charleston Reform Movement, uh, and they uh, produce a radically abbreviated liturgy, which they believe is appropriate to the times and appreciative of what they called this happy land that Jews now called home, and they write a whole new prayer for the government, which is an indication that there must have been people who thought that the same prayer we said for kings is not appropriate for a republic. So David Nunez Carvalho, uh, who wrote this prayer, um, um, uh, said really very, very different prayer than Hanotain Chua. Now, the point is um, uh, that, that we pray to a God who influences America for good. That's very, very different from the God of our traditional Jewish prayer who exalts monarchs and inclines their heart to treat Jews mercifully. There's no regal language here. It doesn't exalt the president or officials. It simply asks God to bless, preserve, and uh, enlighten that, of course, in their time was the most, uh, the highest ideal to enlighten our leaders. And then in an expression of patriotic piety that we have not seen before in an American prayer book, this reform prayer book thanks God for having numbered us with the inhabitants of this thy much favored land and so on and so forth. Um, and then it seeks God's blessing, not only on the leaders, but also on the people of the United States. And it prays that the light of science and civilization defend them, even then science was important, defend them on every side from the subtle hypocrite and open adversary. Uh, note that unlike the traditional prayer, um, this prayer does not close with the hope of redemption uh, that goes unmentioned. Now, um, in 1846, next slide, please. A young Orthodox rabbi arrives from Germany. His name was Max Lilienthal. He had a big reputation. Um, and he is made 
They didn't have rap, much in the way of rabbis. Uh, he, he was arguably the second or third ordained rabbi ever to arrive on, on these shores. Uh, and they appoint him chief rabbi of a union of New York's three leading German Jewish organizations, congregations, the three German Jewish Orthodox congregations, they get together in order to hire Max Lilienthal. They give him a certain amount of power. And one of the first things he does is abolish the saying of Hanotein Chua. And instead, he writes a new Hebrew prayer, which you see here. He apparently wrote that prayer. Um, I, I, I've shown elsewhere why I think he wrote it. It doesn't have his name on it. Um, and this prayer you can find reprinted throughout the 19th century. If you have any 19th century American Sidurim, look at the prayer for the government. It may very well be this prayer. Occasionally you'll hear it even in the 20th century. Um, it's of course a great irony that it's in an Orthodox prayer book to, to, uh, into the 20th century, because Max Lilienthal, although originally is an Orthodox chief rabbi in New York, uh, he's best remembered uh, for becoming a reform rabbi in Cincinnati, um, um, uh, where he uh, spends uh, the last uh, uh, three, uh, three, three, more than three decades of his life. But this flowery Hebrew prayer is actually quite extraordinary if you read it, because it's the theme of Zion in America. And it gives you a sense. People knew that the Hanotain Chua prayer is a bit obsequious and uh, groveling. Um, and this prayer is the opposite. It radiates optimism and self-confidence, where Hanotain Chua draws metaphors from the exile, this prayer looks towards redemption. And what's amazing is it takes biblical depictions of Eretz Yisrael and applies them to, um, uh, to the United States. This is Zion. Uh, in America, you know, uh, let not violence be heard in their land, um, uh, and uh, and and wasting and destruction within uh, its uh, its boundaries, um, and uh, um, the the and the strangest of all, since he's chief rabbi of New York is the prayer that there should be rain in due season. There is no rainy season in New York. There is in Eretz Yisrael, but somehow he was applying um, uh, uh, completely uh, the uh, ideas of, uh, uh, of the tradition in Eretz Yisrael to the United States. Uh, once again, there is a sense that our leaders the president, the vice president, note in English, they need divine guidance. No sense of their being exalted, much less 
that they should be preserved in office. And then very strangely, you have a series of prayers uh, for uh, the city of New York, for its inhabitants. That of course makes sense when you're the chief rabbi of New York, but um, uh, this prayer book, the publisher distributed it across the country. So it kind of reinforced the belief, don't the New Yorkers here shouldn't take offense, but it reinforced the mistaken belief that New York was a microcosm of American Jewry as a whole, and that everybody should pray for New York. Um, um, I do note that uh, notwithstanding some of these features, we still hear, unlike the reform prayer, this orthodox prayer does end on the note um, uh, of, of uh, uh, Yavot Sion Goel, Adki Yavot Sion Goel, um, uh, it should be Valet Sion Goel, um, um, and so on. Um, now, what we see, this is not the only, it's the most famous and wide, wide uh, most widely reprinted new prayer uh, that rabbis produce in the 19th century, but they all have three features. First of all, they're American prayers exhibiting a conscious effort to distinguish Judaism in America from its counterpart in Europe. Panotein Chua applied to the entire diaspora these prayers are American. Second of all, and you can see it here, the prayer includes and often begins with a blessing for the country, as if to underscore that it's the country, America, rather than any particular president who guarantees Jewish liberty. We, we notice that both of them, the uh, Yirmiyahu talks about ear, so it's part of the tradition, but whereas Hanotain Chua emphasizes the king, these prayers emphasizes Jeremiah did uh, the, the place. And the third thing is that uh, instead of exaggerated deference to leaders, and so on, elevating the leader, uh, which Hanotain Chua, the traditional prayer does, suddenly we see prayers that emphasize the leader's own subservience to God. The earlier prayer plays to the vanity of the sovereign and underscores Jewish powerlessness. The new prayer, which by the way, are quite akin to, to parallel Protestant prayers, emphasize the vulnerability of political leaders and their consequent need for divine guidance. But I want to make clear that it was by no means a universal view that Hanotain uh, 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 should be replaced. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, in the very beautiful Sephardic Sidur, produced in 1837 by Isaac Leeser uh, of Philadelphia, the most uh, important traditional Jewish leader of his time. Um, there we see a traditional 
prayer for the government. Next slide, please. I think I made you a slide. Yeah, there it is. Uh, Note a few things. In the Lisa prayer book, there are two prayers for the government, one for a monarchy and one for a Republican government. Uh, some of you probably know the Sachs prayer book that also has one for Canada, one for the US. Here it was for a monarchy and for a Republican government. Um, the differences are not great, but do note that Lisa quietly drops from the prayer book the line, may uh, he subdue Yaber Amim Tachat Raglav, the subdue nations under his feet and make enemies fall before him and in whatsoever he undertake, may he prosper. We saw that in uh, the prayer for uh, the czar, uh, Lisa found it inappropriate for a Republican government uh, that shouldn't be imperialist, and he dropped it. Um, and um, we will later see, and maybe, maybe it's the next slide, that subsequently here, well, here you can still see the word that praying for God to, uh, for Rahmanut, uh, that um, uh, the last line, uh, three uh, lines up, that asking that uh, public officials have Rahmanus, have mercy, have compassion uh, um, on Jews. But next slide, please. If you look at the way the the prayer is rewritten slightly by Philip Birnbaum, um, who's the most important uh, Orthodox liturgist of um, before the art scroll appears. Almost every synagogue, uh, you, uh, Orthodox synagogue used Birnbaum's liturgy in the second half of the 20th century. You will see that he and there are others drop that idea of asking God to instill mercy, Rachmanut, into the heart of the sovereign, his advisors, and his officials. That was uh, a strong sense. In America, Jews are defended on the basis of rights, not on whether the president has Rachmanus on Jews. And uh, the relationship between the leaders and the led uh, was, was based on a constitution, not on the whims. So uh, uh, Birnbaum and others felt not on the whims of the leader and they took out Rachmanut. But it's interesting to note that in his prayer book, Chief Rabbi Hertz of England writing um, uh, in the 1930s, uh, he lamented that the Rachmanut was taken out. He observed that the fate of Jews very much still depends on the mood of the leader. And astonishingly, his example is what happened in Germany, where uh, alas, Adolf Hitler had no Rachmanut. 
and he advocated for the words return, but neither in England nor in America uh, has that actually happened. Um, I won't say a lot about non-Orthodox Jews, but the next slide is from um, the Union Prayer Book in 1895, and I give it here uh, because an entirely different prayer. Uh, this is the most popular Reformed Jewish prayer. Uh, many Reformed Jews knew it by heart uh, for 75 years. Fervently, we invoke thy benediction for this our country and our nation. That emphasis on our underscores the quest to belong and loyal. Note that leaders are secondary uh, to the nation uh, in our prayers, and they are subject uh, of the call, uh, they're subject to God's enlightenment. Sustain with thy power those whom the people have set in authority. Uh, the prayer ended with a call for peace and goodwill among all the citizens of their land, of this land, and so on. Um, and um, uh, this prayer is so well known and popular that I found at least one Orthodox prayer book that reprinted the prayer, which I take to be an indication that its sentiments, it ex that the sentiments it expressed extended far beyond the reform movement. Uh, the next slide shows a prayer written by one of the great rabbinic scholars in America, Levi Ginsberg, um, and very well known uh, and still used within the conservative movement. It first appears, so far as I know, in 1927, and with, with changes, uh, it's reprinted not only in every conservative prayer book, but also in the Reconstructionist prayer book. And the reason I think it has proven so popular, unlike the reform prayer, which disappeared, was because uh, Leif Ginsburg understood uh, in, in some ways America. S the central idea here is in the middle, plant among the peoples of different nationalities and faiths who dwell here, love and brotherhood, peace and friendship, uproot from their hearts all hatred and enmity, all jealousy and vying for supremacy. The English is not a translation in keeping uh, with the practice of the conservative movement. Uh, it's really a paraphrase, but nevertheless, many know it. May citizens of all races and creeds forge a common bond in true harmony to banish all hatred and bigotry. And it's amazing how frequently that sentiment has seemed very, very appropriate to the American um, uh, a setting. Um, and that I think explains why this is one of the most frequently invoked substitutes for Hanoten Chua long after other prayers for the government like Lilienthal's and even the reform prayers, um, uh, the early reform prayers were forgotten. This prayer has remained timely even uh, you know, to our own day. 
Now, the general practice of praying aloud for the welfare of the country and the government declined in American Jewish circles, even in Orthodox circles, during the Vietnam and post-Vietnam years, with many American Jews openly critical of America's foreign and domestic policy. So prayers uh, for the government and for the leaders seem to ring hollow, declining patriotism, widespread disillusionment with government, which was found in Jewish and non-Jewish circles, spawned liturgical change. Uh, those who uh, are familiar with the reform gates of prayer know that it, it uh, didn't have any prayer for the government. It, 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 it had a very short prayer divorced from the liturgy uh, that consisted of four lines. But even more interesting, next slide, please. Uh, this is the first edition. It's rather rare, I think, of the Art Scroll Sitter um, in 1984. And there's no prayer to the government whatsoever. There is a note, unfortunately, it's very small, but at the very bottom of the page there, under Mishaberach, that note reads, in many congregations, a prayer for the welfare of the state is recited, but they didn't print any prayer. Um, and even shuls that did have prayers in their sidurim, there's a lot of evidence that somehow they recited those prayers much less frequently. However, and this many will remember, the prayer for the government made a very speedy comeback after the attacks of 9-11. Suddenly public patriotism was popular, remember all those flags, and in the Orthodox community the traditional prayer was soon coupled with a brand new prayer. Many don't realize it's brand new and Imagine that it went back to Sinai, but older people will remember that we never had such a prayer. Uh, a brand new, nicely written prayer uh, sent out, I believe, by the RCA uh, for American soldiers. Next slide, please. And uh, here it is. Uh, this prayer, which some will recognize, um, um, uh, uh, now appears in the Saxe Sidur and became part uh, of the liturgy. One of the ways you know that it's a new prayer, by the way, is that it mentions Ba'avir Uvayam. It mentions in the air, uh, suggesting that there's an air force. At Sinai, uh, there wasn't an air force. This is a new prayer. Um, most recently, uh, over the last few years, the prayer for the government has again fallen into decline, and I don't mean because COVID has closed their synagogues and shortened the tefillot, uh, in an era of political divisions, some felt that Hanotein Chua, or maybe any of the traditional prayers were inappropriate and should be replaced. Uh, next slide, please. So um, uh, let me give uh, credit to Rabbi Muscat. Um, uh, who wrote a new prayer. It does begin, but uh, when you read on, 
you'll see that he only prays for the country. It doesn't mention the leaders. Um, and uh, that, that was a suggestion that maybe we don't like our leaders. Uh, next, uh, next slide here, you see the central synagogue, one of the largest synagogue uh, reform congregations in the United States, where again, uh, the emphasis is on America. Much to be done in our time and, uh, and, and so on. And uh, while it asks that leaders govern with wisdom and forbearance, uh, it doesn't exactly pray for those leaders. Um, and all of that reminds us of the new mood uh, that emerged in some parts of America uh, in, the 20, in, in the 21st century. The point of all of this is that the prayer for the government serves as a revealing historical barometer. Uh, if you're an American Jewish historian, it's a barometer for the relationship between American Jews and the state. But as we saw, even in Russia, you can learn a lot by looking closely at prayers for the government. Uh, and the changes we have seen in these prayers, uh, the growing minority group confidence that they display, the critical issues to which they point, the complex moral tensions that they engender seem to me to speak to themes central to the whole American Jewish experience. They shed light not only on our faith, but also on our politics and acculturation and community conscience. Um, next slide. In the final analysis, the prayer for the government reinforces an insight that the great historian of American religion, Martin Marty, expressed when he once heard me talk about the Jewish prayer for the government. Governments, he observed partly, receive the prayers that they deserve. So let's hope that our new president, whether you voted for him or not, merits our wholehearted and fervent tefillot. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Sarna, for this really, really wonderful lecture. Uh, I want to remind folks again that if they have questions, feel free to chat them to me. Uh, the one that we have had come in so far was about uh, what happened with these prayers uh, for both uh, the Union and the Confederacy during the Civil War and whether there were any liturgical changes for that. So that's a very good question. Uh, we certainly have quite a lot of prayers um, in Jewish newspapers. Um, uh, they tend to be one-off prayers, meaning prayers for, um, uh, for the union rather, uh, and, and we also have um, prayers for um, uh, the 
Confederacy, the prayer, there is a prayer for the Confederacy that is um, really amazingly um, uh, strong in its attack on the Union and uh, in its curses for uh, its fellow, I mean, essentially for fellow Jews in the Union, what should happen and so on. Um, and uh, that prayer was only printed in English. It's by a rabbi in Alabama. Uh, I, I printed it somewhere. Maybe it's in, uh, it's in one of my books on the Civil War. Um, and um, uh, uh, of course, uh, Sabato Moraes, the uh, Sephardic rabbi of Mikveh Israel, um, uh, write some rather fervent prayers for the union. Um, and that tradition of special prayers in wartime, which is not at all unique to the United States, but that tradition lasts into World War II, where you can see special prayers, um, often with special mention of soldiers and so on, not found in Hanotein. Uh, but you're absolutely right uh, that uh, there were prayers uttered. And uh, let's say in Europe in World War I, uh, you had Jews on opposite sides of uh, the struggle, uh, essentially uh, uh, praying uh, that their fellow Jews uh, fall. Yad Ber Amim and so on. Um, and uh, people noted how strange that was. And the same had been true in the Civil War. Great, thank you. We had one more question come in uh, about whether you know anything about the, the inclusion of, uh, in the conservative Sidor, there's the inclusion of Proverbs 1434, Srakat Tiromem Goy, Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. And whether you know any of the, uh, the, the history of the English. Because um, I have here uh, the original. Um, I don't think it's a beautiful uh, uh, sentiment, but it, it, it was not, uh, I'm looking through the original that Ginsburg wrote and um, uh, it's not there. So I presume I have not uh, uh, studied it and I don't think it's in the Silverman uh, either. And I therefore imagine that it's more recent reflecting some of these newer trends uh, that entered in um, as people uh, uh, you know, had different ideas about the direction that they wanted the country uh, to go in. Um, but it is true, and I was so interested, uh, the Ginsburg prayer did famously conclude uh, in English with lo yisagoy goy cherev velo yilmedu od milchama, the Hebrew added a line that wasn't translated, but the idea that nation shall not lift up sword against nation 
neither the, uh, shall they learn war anymore. And that famous idea is later incorporated into the prayer for soldiers uh, that we saw uh, entering the Orthodox liturgy. So it shows that there are um, a certain amount of borrowing uh, and there, it has been a place for liturgical creativity um, because that's where liturgical creativity was permitted, meaning you can't uh, uh, change the Shemona Esrei, but there were all sorts of prayers added and subtracted um, uh, 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 after the Torah is put away. And in that section, um, and so on, and um, uh, uh, it, it'll, that, that, that explains, I think, why people felt a little freer uh, to add and subtract uh, to the prayer for the government. Great, and uh, do, do we have time for one more or? Great, uh, so I think we had the one, we had one about uh, whether you know if uh, black Jews have any unique prayers in this vein or if there's any uh, history around, around so other, other very, groups composing um, prayers. It's a good question for somebody to look at. Um, many of the uh, African, if we're talking about African-American uh, synagogues that existed in the United States, but also in other places, they followed a much more oral tradition. In other words, there was an assumption that the minister uh, would express the feelings of his heart. And um, uh, um, so uh, uh, the, the, um, uh, my guess is that as in black churches and in many churches in America, rather than having a fixed liturgy um, you had uh, kind of oral expression uh, of, of uh, uh, feelings towards uh, the government um, on any particular uh, uh, Shabbat. Um, and um, that, that tradition actually had a long history before Hanotenchua that's, there was no fixed liturgy for the government. We had a lot of different ones. So uh, there was perfect legitimacy. And of course, um, where you didn't have um, so much literacy, the idea of praying from the heart uh, um, uh, was a very popular one. So that would be my expectation but I'm sure there's going to be more um, study of uh, these matters. I do not know um, uh, if you're asking about the Jews of Ethiopia, um, I don't know what their uh, liturgy was for the government. It would be very unlikely that they would have known a late prayer like Hanotain Chua, uh, whether they had a different prayer or whether 
they simply had Avodasha um, Balev, uh, a prayer from their heart, uh, would be interesting to uh, look into. Uh, I, I did see there the comment, so I'll have to uh, go and, uh, and and check that line out uh, for uh, Professor Fishman. Uh, it would be interesting to know uh, who added it in. Uh, um, of course, it was not a small matter to add to um, uh, a line to Levi Ginsburg, so it would be interesting to know uh, who did it. Um, well, let I me thank everybody again for um, uh, for joining us and for allowing me to present this this material. And I, I certainly uh, want to again thank uh, uh, the sponsors um, uh, uh, for making it possible. Your damn family, shape family, uh, and uh, I hope that. Uh, uh, my words offer some aliyah to uh, these nishamot, uh, and uh, uh, you know, thank you for allowing me. Um, ah, sorry, the wrong David Fishman. I uh, oh, not the wrong, the right David Fishman, but a different David Fishman. Uh, I know uh, uh, David Fishman. I remember his parents well and his sister and. Um, uh, we once we, we were saying Kaddish together once in London. Uh, so nice to have you here and nice to have the entire uh, group uh, assembled. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I want to wish everybody a very happy Hanukkah, a very happy Chodesh today. Thank you very much.